This morning we're continuing our series on the book of Joshua and we come to chapter 7 and our topic this morning is the jolly subject of sin. So if you find yourself offended by what you hear this morning, then you can blame Paul. But if it's good, I'll take the credit. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) Now, joking aside, um, this is a heavy, heavy topic and it is a challenging story that we're going to read this morning. But I think, uh, I think a pertinent one for us at this time, because the subject of holiness keeps coming up, doesn't it? Uh, In our last series on community, Steve spoke about us being a holy people. Just a few weeks ago, when Joe was talking about Joshua meeting the commander of the Lord's army, he spoke about that holiness, that holy moment that Joshua had. And um, not long ago, Dave Brewis had a prophetic word for us as the Stoke site. And part of that was about us throwing off every sin that hinders us. It seems that God is speaking to us at this time about holiness, which I think is quite exciting because historically, every time there's been a powerful move of God in this country, alongside it has come a call to holiness amongst God's people. Here's a couple of examples. In 1729, at Oxford University, uh, John Wesley decided to start what became known as the Holy Club, which was probably supposed to be an insult at the time, but you know. (laughs) Um, And so him uh, and a few Uh, friends, including his brother Charles Wesley, uh, who was the famous hymn writer, and uh, George Whitfield, who went on to be an amazing evangelist. Um, They started this club where they would come together and pray and read the Bible, and they would evaluate their holiness of their lives. And they took it so seriously, and they approached it so methodically, that they became known as the Methodists. And God moved in a powerful way. And then later in 1904, the famous Welsh revival, where about 90,000 people came to faith, which might not sound many, but in Wales, that's with 6% of the population of people over the age of 11. And at that time, because of that, things changed in the culture around them. Pubs were forced to close because they weren't getting any business. Football matches were arranged around revival meetings. And uh, famously, apparently, the pit ponies used in the mines stopped understanding the commands given to them by the miners because they were no longer swearing at them. (laughs) When God moves, it comes with holiness amongst his people. And so as we read the story this morning and we consider this call to holiness, let's do so with faith and expectation. If God is speaking to us about this, who knows what's on the horizon? So where are we in the story of Joshua? Well, Joshua became the leader of God's people um, and they uh, went and spied out Jericho, the first city that would stop them from coming into the promised land. They sent in the spies and then they crossed over the River Jordan miraculously, uh, reminding them, of course, of when God split the Red Sea and brought them out of Egypt. Then they came, Joshua met the commander of the Lord's army, had his holy moment and was instructed as to the plan which Simon spoke about last week, which of course we all know, marching around the city and the walls were miraculously broken down and the whole city was taken by the Israelite people. And now we come to chapter 7 where things start to go a bit wrong. 
as often seems to be the case in our lives and in the, in the Bible, the high of the miraculous victory was followed by the reminder that sin is close at hand. Now, in our cultural context, this story um, can be a little bit difficult for us to process. And we're going to explore this morning two reasons why that is. I'm going to tell the story rather than reading the whole of chapter 7 out. We're going to tell the story and pick out some truths about sin as we go through. Um, One thing that's important to note um, is that just before they went into Jericho, in chapter 6, Joshua had instructed the Israelites clearly. He said, keep away from the devoted things so you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. So they'd all heard that warning. In they went and took the city of Jericho. But unfortunately, we learn at the beginning of chapter 7 that one man did not heed the warning. His name is Achan, and he could not resist taking a little bit of the plunder for himself. At first, no one knew about it. He saw some of the valuable items, he snuck them away, and he hid them in his tent, and life went on. But then the Israelites come to the next city that they need to take, uh, the city of Ai. And as with Jericho, the spies go in, and they report back to Joshua, I don't think we're going to need everyone for this one. It's not a very big city. I reckon we can take it with about 3,000 men. So... Joshua sends 3,000 men to the city of Ai. But the mission does not quite go to plan. And they are chased back. 36 of them are killed. And they return fearful. In fact, it says that their hearts melted in fear and became like water. Unsurprisingly, Joshua then goes to God and is like, "Um, what's going on? Why would you bring us this far for us to just fail at this point? Now everyone's going to laugh at us. We're going to be wiped out. And what's that going to do for the glory of your name, Lord? And God reveals to him what's happened. So in verse 11 of chapter 7, God says to Joshua, Israel have sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. The first thing that it might be difficult for us to accept as we hear this story in our cultural context is just that sin is a big deal. It affects God's plans. And I think it's hard for us to register the magnitude of sin for two reasons. Uh, One, because of the secular worldview around us, and one, because of our Christian worldview. So we, uh, we live in a society, don't we, where morality is less and less clear-cut and which often rejects the idea of an absolute moral truth. Uh, the mantra is, you do you. As long as you're not hurting anybody, it doesn't matter. Crack on. I think the idea of, uh, of sin itself is uh, unpopular and probably viewed by many around us as just a bit old-fashioned. Many things which the Bible condones as sinful are viewed in our culture as just not really a big deal anymore. And Achan was probably thinking to himself, it's only a little bit of plunder, isn't it? No one's going to know. No one's going to notice. I've definitely told myself that lie many times. I'll grant you not about plunder, but you know what I mean. 
It strikes me what, that one of the devil's best tricks is underplaying the importance of sin. And the worldview around us emphasizes that lie. And secondly, we find it hard to accept that sin is a big deal because of grace. Because we live in a new covenant, we can be tempted to think, oh, well, this is all Old Testament stuff, isn't it? It doesn't apply anymore. And we live under grace, so sin is less bad, right? <laughs> Let's have a quick look at a couple of New Testament verses to see what the apostles have to say on that matter. <laughs> In the book of 1 Peter, on two occasions, Peter suggests that the presence of sin can hinder the power of our prayers. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about the grave consequences of taking communion in a sinful and disrespectful manner. In Revelation, in the letters to the churches, several of them are told, if you don't repent and carry on sinning in this way, I will remove your lampstand, i.e. I will bring judgment to you. We could go on, but it's clear that in the New Testament, under grace, sin is a big deal. It affects God's plans. It has consequences. Of course, the amazing reality of grace is that sin's power has been broken. But if we belittle sin, then we belittle Jesus's work on the cross. But more on that later. Let's carry on with Achan's story. We're going to pick up again at verse 11. So God was telling Joshua and explaining to him why they hadn't succeeded and what's gone wrong. Because Israel have sinned. And then in verse 12 he says, That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And God goes on to instruct Joshua to call out all of the congregation, all of the people, so he can reveal who has sinned and they can be punished. So sure enough, the next morning, Joshua takes out, calls out all the tribes. They come out and by pulling lots, they work out who is to blame. First of all, which tribe is he from? Then which clan is he from? Which family is he from? which man. At this point, Achan is cornered and he comes clean. Verse 20 says, Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Which then brings us to the part of the story which we find uncomfortable. I mean, I know I do at least. I'm going to read the last few verses of chapter 7. It says, Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkey and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua says, Why have you brought this trouble upon us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. 
The second thing that we might find uh, difficult to believe about this story is that sin is a communal issue. One man sinned, but God holds them collectively responsible. In verse 11, he said, Israel have sinned. They have violated my covenant. All of Israel's plans are affected by this one man's sin and his whole family is punished as a consequence. They are removed from the congregation. Because sin is a communal issue, it affects the whole body. Now, at this point in his notes, Paul was going to tell you a delightful story about his ingrown toenail, which apparently he left to fester for many months, um, tried to hide, um, performed what he described as home operations on it, to the point that it finally exploded inside his shoe and had to be removed. Now, he was a teenager. Sorry, I'm supposed to emphasize that. But he is now apparently a nine-toenailed man. So there's a fun fact about your leader. You will be thoroughly disappointed to hear that I do not have a story about a festering body part to tell. But I can tell you that from my experience... What he was trying to illustrate, (laughs) the fact that hidden sin can affect the whole body is true. I remember once um, sitting with Chris and Jane Edwards, uh, wonderful people uh, and friends of ours here at the city site, um, and talking about my sin, confessing my sin. And they said to me, you've brought it into the light, you've removed the sting. As soon as we speak out our sin, some of its power is removed. Its grip is loosened on us. Imagine you are Achan in the crowd that day. The lots are drawn, the circle closes in. And you sense the impending doom until your lot is drawn. And then, okay, okay, you got me. I admit it. I did it. Because sin hasn't changed since day one, has it? Achan admits, I saw it, I wanted it, I took it. I knew it was wrong, so I hid it and tried to cover it up. And that's basically how temptation and sin work, isn't it? From the Garden of Eden until today. We see something, we know we shouldn't touch it, but we want it. Maybe because our culture values it. Or because the devil tells us, it's not going to hurt you, it's good for you. And so... We give in to temptation and then we try to hide it. But more often than not, that feeling of the circle closing in and the impending doom hovers over us as we carry our guilt around with us. To remove its power, we need to speak it out. So I ask you to consider today, what is your plunder? What is it that you need to stop looking at? What do you need to speak out? Sin hasn't changed, and the consequences of sin haven't changed. Romans 3 tells us that the wages of sin are death. We see that today's story, but it's also death in so many different ways. All over the Bible, we see sin killing relationships. And we must be careful not to let our individualistic culture convince us that this is no longer the case, that our sin is just about us and only ever hurts us. Last week, Simon spoke about the enemy's schemes to bring division amongst us and tolerating sin 
and keeping sin to ourselves is just playing into his hands. Uh, Like I spoke about in our last series, we need to be a community that's open and honest with one another. And part of that is confessing our sins to one another and prioritizing holiness, helping one another on that journey because sin is a communal issue. So this story illustrates the destructive impact that sin has on the people of God. And we've said, haven't we, the nature of sin hasn't changed. We are plagued by this inescapable disease. But something has changed. In today's story, one man sinned and all the people were punished. Our story is that all people sinned and one man was punished. The more we grasp the magnitude of sin and the death that it invariably causes, the more we marvel at what Jesus has done for us. Because through his death and resurrection, Jesus took the penalty of sin. He broke the power which it holds over us and he removed the partition which it creates between us and our father. Now we are free and have the power to overcome sin. John Piper says, the only sin that you can defeat is a defeated sin. The only sin you can overcome is an already forgiven sin. If we try to defeat sin in order to be acceptable to, be, to God, there is no power there. The power to overcome sin comes from knowing that it's already been overcome. God's hatred of sin is fierce. But his love for his children is fiercer still. Understanding the depth of our father's love for us is key to dealing with sin. Spurgeon wrote, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Um, There's a book that I've recommended before, but I'm going to say it again. Um, It's called Gentle and Lowly. um, And it's a really helpful book in exploring the heart of God towards us as sinners. And in there, the writer uses an analogy of a father dealing with a sick child. The fact that the child is sick produces more tenderness and compassion in the father. Sure, he might feel anger at the sickness ravaging their body, Feeling anger at the child would be completely out of place and out of character. And so it is with our Heavenly Father uh, and the sin that plagues us. Uh, Natalia, would you like to come back up whilst I finish? And Steve, where are you? (laughs) So we started by saying uh, that holiness is vital if we want to see a move of God. I don't know if you remember, but before uh, COVID a few years ago, Mike Thorne prophesied about a shaking that was coming. And he said in there that God's people would need to decide where to put their trust. And we face that same question now. The story of Achan demonstrates that sin is a big deal and that it is a communal issue. But the absolute marvel of the gospel is that we now live under a new covenant wherein the power, the penalty, and the partition of sin are broken. We can overcome sin by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. We no longer fear death because our penalty has been paid. 
And we can come to our loving Father and find mercy and forgiveness every time because the partition of sin has been demolished. Confessing our sins is a crucial part of our lives as God's people. But this can be hard for us to do because we can't help but wonder, um, what will people think of me? But let me say that never have I ever found one of my brothers or sisters to be harsh or judgmental. Because let's face it, in our own minds, we are all, like Paul says, the worst of sinners, aren't we? And we all know that we're only here by the grace of God. Just as sin is a communal issue, so the community of God is part of the solution. So we're going to respond now. We're going to take communion and let's confess our sins to God and to one another. Let's receive his grace and mercy once more and let's commit ourselves as a people to holiness once more.